having me. Um, so it's one of my favorite topics, not just mine. I think every patient coming through the door is a potential candidate to have a CT scan these days. Um, but um, we'll try and uh, get into some of this. Let's see if this will work. Try that way then. So um, this, of course, is the problem that everybody's afraid of. So there's the mark. And there's a swollen leg on that side. That was a DVT, and that's the patient's cause of death, which is a, essentially a saddle embolus. And um, that hasn't gone away. So it's been there for a long time, and it's still going to be there until I die, probably, um, because it never will go away, because it's just one of those things that's a fact of life, that we have thrombotic disorders, unfortunately. Uh, and it's not, not just my favorite topic. If you do the search in PubMed, you get about, you know, five, 6,000 papers a year that come up with the search uh, words pulmonary embolism. So we have about, you know, 1,250 publications a year if you look at. And as you can see, before 1990 or post-1990 or post-2000, um, the numbers are sort of pretty well stable. It's not as if it's going to go down because now we have this new thing and now it's all going to go away. So um, it's a very frequent f clinical problem, as you're all aware. And uh, two per 1,000 suspected cases per year in the Western world. Probably these days it's more like four to six per 1,000 suspected cases because I think generally our threshold of suspicion has gone down. And uh, we'll get back to that in a minute. Uh, and again, those, those numbers are pretty stable from the mid-50s to the early 90s when we did some work ourselves when I was still in, uh, in Holland, in Amsterdam. Um, and the main... Um, there's been a slight change in that people used to see DVT and PE as two separate entities, but since then it's been realized that it's all one and the same disease. So, and that's based on the fact that if you have people with proven DVT and you go look for PE, half of them will have a PE and, and they're all silent. Um, and if you turn it around, if somebody has a PE and you go and look for the DVT with venogram, then you'll find 70 to 90% of the evidence of clot in the legs uh, with the premise that some of them will have completely shot all their clots straight into their lungs, or some will have clot in another location, like we see increasing numbers of, uh, of PE coming out of, uh, out of the arms, for instance, because we use many more central lines and venous catheters, which are prone to developing uh, thrombus and then give emboli. So it's all one, one big uh, soup of uh, emboli and thrombi, I guess. Uh, let's see, I have to sort of get used to this. So. So why is it important to get the diagnosis? Well, if those, uh, you know, if you're looking at the suspicion of a VTE, only about 15%, and it's actually getting less and less, of people who have this, where the suspicion is raised, uh, so 90% don't have the disease. So you need to sort of figure out which of the patients need anticoagulant therapy, um, but you don't want to overtreat because if you overtreat, you're going to uh, cause misery, morbidity, as well as mor mortality in patients who don't even have the disease. So, uh, because anticoagulants just have bleeding complications, uh, and they're not nil. So, the balance of the diagnosis ultimately is that if you have more than 75% of patients with a clinical suspicion that don't have the diagnosis confirmed, and if you look at the bleeding complications, it's about one per 100 treatment years that will develop a fatal uh, bleed. Uh, four to sixteen percent uh, is the risk of serious hemorrhage, um, and then thirty percent of those with untreated PE 
will suffer a second fatal uh, event. So you've got to sort of, the, what you're trying to do is do the secondary prevention once the event has occurred. And another 30% of untreated PE will have a second event that's not fatal, but will put them at an increased risk of developing chronic thromboembolic pulmonary hypertension, post-thrombotic post syndrome, and things like that. And um, there's one study that has really um, looked at um, what if you treat and you just treat with oral anticoagulants versus oral anticoagulants and heparin, and heparin and it showed that if you only give oral anticoagulants, that's not good enough. So there's still then propagation of, of clot, and more, more events. And that study was stopped early and it was written in the New England Journal of Medicine back in 1992. So obviously we have a task to do, which is to identify those who need treatment and make sure we can exclude as many as possible that don't need treatment. Uh, and you have to do that in a safe way, so you can't really miss the disease either. So chronic thromboembolic pulmonary hypertension, just putting up this slide because um, uh, it is sort of something that you probably don't see too much of because it sort of comes later on. Um, <coughs> but about 1 to 7% of patients with a, an episode of a pulmonary embolus will go on to develop chronic thromboembolic pulmonary hypertension. That, that risk is in the higher range if you don't treat them properly. If you treat them properly, it's going to be more like less than 1%. And this is just the same patient, so this is what was dug out of those pulmonary arteries when they did thromboendarterectomy to try and correct that. So you can treat it if you, if you catch it on time, uh, but it is obviously major surgery if you want to try and do that. So it's much better to make sure that we are ahead of the game. So, what have we get, so after that introduction, what do we have in diagnostic modalities other than chest x-ray and ECG? Um, well, we have pulmonary angiography. We have less and less of that. We have lung scintigraphy. We have less and less of that. So all we really left with is all the newer tests. So D-dimer, clinical probability, ultrasound of the leg veins, echocardiography for selected patients, and then we have the CT methods and MRI methods. And uh, we'll, uh, we'll go through those a little bit. Um, and by the way, the chest x-ray and the ECG, they're great tests because they can help you uh, exclude things that mimic pulmonary embolism. So, you know, do a chest x-ray, see pneumothorax, then don't send the patient for a CT scan, you have an idea why this patient is symptomatic. Same thing, ECG, if you see ST uh, depression and it's an MI, and obviously that person doesn't need to come for a CT pulmonary angiogram either. Um, so we have um, pulmonary angiography still there, and that's only there if we have non-invasive tests that remain non-diagnostic. Very rare these days. Um, if people have a really, really high bleeding risk and you must have a diagnosis confirmed, uh, because you know that if you're going to treat this patient, the patient may well be at very, very high risk of a fatal bleed, let's say post-neurosurgery. In the first day, a patient develops symptoms of a PE, neurosurgeon is not going to be happy to give any anticoagulants because you may well kill the patient in the process. So may, may, that may be medical legal more than anything. And then we have the workup of chronic thromboembolic pulmonary hypertension that's gradually being replaced, replaced with CT and MR. And then we have some patients who will, have, who will be considered for interventional therapy. So these are, these are the ones that have the massive PE that are either rushed into a thoracotomy situation, which usually ends up with death, um, or you can go and do a stick in a, a catheter and uh, remove some or, part, or all of the clot. So not too many indications left for this, and everybody will be happy with that. Uh, we did quite a few pulmonary angiograms in the in the 80s and 90s, um, uh, but 
uh, nobody liked it, of course, because it was invasive. Uh, people were a little bit scared of it. Um, and the complication rates weren't all that bad, but you can see these are what's called tram lines. So you see a central filling defect with the, with the black stripes around it. That's a filling defect with some contrast coming around, although you can see a big filling defect in that, in that lower lobe artery there. If you're looking at massive PE, um, there's been some work uh, that, we, uh, that we also did uh, looking at uh, whether we can uh, take care of those patients using interventional radiology uh, methods. And this is the same patient uh, on the left pre-therapy, on the right post-therapy. The therapy consisted of a, of a suction catheter, essentially, which tried to sort of... Uh, uh, and that's been used also, for instance, for... Uh, uh, dialysis, excess shunt, thrombosis, and stuff like that, where they can take all this, suck all this clot out, and basically open the vessel. Um, so what you see there is the same timing from contrast injection, the same position of the catheter, and the big difference you'll see is that on the left, all the you see lot lot of vessels that just don't come up. So there's big holes everywhere where there's no perfusion. Post treatment, you see all of a sudden a vessel starting to appear, and notice that. This is now already an arch aortogram because the circulation time through the vascular bed has improved. So that's essentially what, what you did. And we saw drastic improvements, obviously, in the clinical findings of these patients. So they clear up almost immediately. Um, I'm not going to advocate doing this all the time because that will make everybody very miserable. Um, and there are other ways to look at this as well, which I'll go and talk to you about. So pulmonary angiography is not the main test for the future. There's a reluctance. There is still, uh, as a reference method, uh, if you really remain uncertain, that that should be the very, very vast major uh, minority of patients. Safety is a concern, particularly the longer we go on and we've moved out from invasive to non-invasive techniques, we're going to lose our ability to do these things safely. So fewer and fewer people have the expertise, have done sufficient pulmonary angiograms that they can do this. What remains is that uh, it, uh, you can certainly rule out pulmonary embolism uh, using uh, angiogram, but you can do the same thing probably with uh, CT and maybe even better, uh, giving, if you have a better um, CT machine. Let's see, there we go. So what about the lung scan? Well, you're all happy that disappeared, didn't you? Um, so lung scans meant you had to wait around and it wasn't available uh, uh, 24-7, like some other tests like CT we have now. Uh, and then, of course, the misery was that uh, you got a diagnosis in about half your patients, and half your patients said, well, it's uh, indeterminate or intermediate probability or low probability or very, very low probability, but hardly ever they said normal. Um, um, effectively, if you, did a, if you do a perfusion scan and it is normal, uh, and that's about 30%, and certainly in outpatients, like your ER setting, it should be about one in three patients that will have a normal perfusion scan. You're very, very good at ruling out PE. Um, so it's still a very good test, uh, but this is just perfusion only. You don't need to worry about the ventilation side of things. Okay, uh, and there's actually a resurgence of perfusion scintigraphy, particularly um, in a lot of departments because of uh, simple... Um, workflow issues so people are being overrun with CT requests and as a result you got to do something and this is a very good way of doing it and we'll come back to some other issues like radiation later on 
On the other end of the spectrum, you have a high probability scan. So now you have a perfusion uh, ventilation. So big vent uh, perfusion defects, normal ventilation, let's say here or there. And that was another 20 to 30% of patients. And those were about 90% positive predictive value. So usually that was good enough to treat. Unless you were in a neurosurgical ward and you still wanted that angiogram. Um, so um, this will be a good way of, uh, of sort of selecting out. But this means that you need to have a ventilation scan. Or you could do this also with a chest x-ray. So normal chest x-ray, abnormal perfusion scan. That was the PISA-PET study that showed that it was basically as good as PIOPET. You had a question there? Yeah. Yeah, if it's normal, it's normal. You don't need anything else. Yeah. No, you don't need to do that. Okay, so the future use of lung scintigraphy is limited. Uh, you, uh, I think if anywhere, it's going to be in your setting, actually, where it's going to be helpful. And also the other area where it's going to be helpful is in obstetrics, so pregnant patients with a suspicion of pulmonary embolism. And that's where a perfusion-only uh, lung scan uh, may well have a significant effect in ruling out PE. And that is to do with the fact that the radiation dose of a perfusion-only lung scan is less to mother and fetus than, uh, than if you do a CT. Um, for a perfusion ventilation scan, however, the radiation dose is higher than for CT, for mother and uh, particularly for the fetus in all the trimesters. Uh, so it's mainly a workflow issue where, you know, there's too many CTs being asked for and you can't do it. Or, you know, if you have people who are unsuitable for a CT, so you have patients that just don't fit on the CT scanner, then you have an alternative because this is relatively open. Um, uh, or if you have pe people who have contraindications for alienated contrast, for instance, which we have more and more of, you can consider going for MR or you can consider going for a perfusion scan. Yes? Yeah. Even the right impact. Yeah. You know, and, and I, I guess, you know, for, and I was very surprised by that because I felt that, you know, it was, it was kind of, yeah, negative, well, the I, negative test CT anticipation of the scans I felt was pretty good for, like, you know, big CTs. So I don't know. So I, I, <laughs> it's the wrong order, isn't it? I mean, usually it would be a VQ well, and then you'd uh, do a CT. Uh, that's not right. So that's all I can say. I mean, if they ask me in court, if the, if the patient has a bleed and they come and they ask me to give my medical legal opinion, they, they're going to lose because it's not the right way. And there's no there's no strategy anywhere described in the literature that says this is the right way of doing it. So you know they've got no there's no literature to back them up and it makes no sense. So you know you may want to warn them about that. But, I'll be there in court telling them that, sorry, you made, the wrong mistake. You made a mistake. This patient shouldn't have been put on. So. All right, anyway, 
So we'll move on to plasma D-dimer, which is, um, I think, uh, a very good test, uh, particularly if you have a relatively low uh, clinical uh, threshold scenario. Uh, it's a good test if you use it in conjunction with uh, some sort of quantification of your clinical risk assessment. Uh, and we'll come back to that in a minute as well. Uh, but D-dimer essentially is a breakdown product of cross-linked fibrin. Um, and uh, so this is mature blood clot, and we all have some D-dimer floating around because there's a constant balance between fibrinolytic and, and, uh, and, and uh, thrombo thrombotic mechanisms going on in our body. And D-dimer is raised in a lot of situations, so in pregnancy it will go, off, go up after the first trimester, in infection, in cancer, in surgical patients. Trauma patients, yes, they will, they will probably go up as well because a lot of these patients will have fractures and stuff like that. So all these, so D-dimer doesn't work there. But for your Joe of the street walk-in patient with, you know, have some chest discomfort, that's where D-dimer is going to be really useful. Um, you can only use the ELISA test, and we do have a fast ELISA test that's individual in the hospital, so you can use that. Um, sensitivity approach is 100%, so you're very good at making sure you don't miss anybody necessarily. Uh, and there are studies out there that's, that tell us that, you know, based on, um, on the on D-dimer, the you can exclude about one-third of your patients from doing anything else. And I'll show you the paper in a minute, um, or the most recent paper in a minute. Um, so D-dimer is a very good test to, to think about, please, yes. You can't, you can't use it, no, yes. No, same as for PE. It's one disease. Yeah. One more question, actually. Um, after, uh, after somebody has a PE or DDT, when do you expect, if it's a short-term anticoagulant, when do you expect the D-dimer to go back to like the normal? Uh, seven, seven to 14 days. Seven to 14 days. Yeah, it starts to go down. Uh, D-dimer is metabolized in the liver, and the half-life is about three days. Seven to seven to yeah, so after 7 to 14 days, you start to see normals, yeah. Yeah, well, yeah, essentially, you're right, that, that's true, yes, it's essentially all groups, but, uh, of course, the problem is specificity, so, great that's sensitive, but you want, I mean, you, you're using the specificity side of things to rule out. So you need to have enough specificity left to be able to say that you have true negatives. Um, so the, true ne so the, the more comorbid conditions, you'll still catch them, but there's nobody you can rule out anymore. Whereas if you have no comorbid conditions and they're relatively normal patients that don't have any of those things like fractures or anything else, then your sensitivity is going to be very high and your specificity is still reasonable that you can start to exclude 35%. So that's about 35% specificity, essentially. Once you get into comorbid conditions, it drops to about 4 or 5%. There's no point in doing it. Okay. Any more about that? Okay. So there are studies done in outpatients. This is mainly done in Geneva, in, the, uh, in Switzerland, by Perrier and his uh, group. Um, Non-diagnostic lung scan and low and intermediate clinical probability and there's another study done in 159 outpatients where D-dimer was used as the only test. So normal D-dimer go home, abnormal D-dimer will start testing you. And they didn't see any PE recurrence in those patients during six months follow-up. 
Um, there's another. Um, uh, so that's. There's another. There's another study that I'll uh, show you in a minute. Uh, that sort of takes in a slightly wider approach, also from the same group. Um, so ultrasonography. This is sort of coming back to the fact that we know the proven patient with proven PE will have 70 to 90 percent of DVT. And initially they used serial impedance plethysmography, which is basically one of these pressure cuffs. You measure the circumference of the leg, you blow up the pressure cuff, and if it's not, so the, le the leg will, f will fill because of arterial pressure, but it can't, can't uh, go back through the venous system because that's occluded. And then what you do is you release the pressure cuff and, all of it, and, you, sh and you should see a very rapid decline as the venous system uh, flows out. Obviously, if you have a DVT, there's a blockage, therefore it won't flow out as well. So that's the principle of uh, impotence plethysmography or IPG. But that was sort of replaced by ultrasound. Um, and it looks like you can, it's equally safe and it's easy to perform and it's uh, essentially the preferred test for DVT. Uh, now this is where things get slightly complicated. Um, let's see if this will work. So if you do a single investigation for, DV, for, for using this test in a, in a cohort of patients who have suspicion for PE, you're not very sensitive. I mean, about 30% is your sensitivity. You're very specific. So uh, most of them that are negative are... Uh, so you have very few uh, false positives, um, but uh, it's mainly the um, you can use it to prove the, the point of a PE. So if it's positive, then yes, it's probably a PE, but if it's negative, you can't rule it out because there's too many that you missed. Um, there is a problem that false positives go on to treatment, uh, and although that if you basically do this in a two-by-two two table, and you can do that yourself, uh, you're saying sensitivity and specificity, and you just put them out, so test positive, test negative, uh, presence or absence of disease, you put it in a four by four table, these are like you do sensitivity and specificity, and you can work out that those false positives are actually starting to weigh a little bit because there's so few that are positive in the first place. So your false positives become a relatively larger group compared to what you'd normally have. But anyway, that's detail. Uh, if you want to, you can read that up in that, that paper uh, in uh, Annals of Internal Medicine. Um, but essentially, uh, what if you think about patients who come in with chest symptoms, if they also have leg symptoms, then you have a very valid point to start with the leg. And if you, if you prove DVT, the treatment for DVT and P is essentially the same. Um, so you could stop at that point. You can say, well, I've proven my point. We need anticoagulant therapy. And therefore, that's the same whether it's a P or a DVT. So we don't need to do anything else. Um, if you're looking at Europe, that's how to do it in Europe. If you look at America, most people will still go and have a CT scan. That will change in the future, I can tell you that. And we'll come back why. Then we have echocardiography. Uh, this is only useful really to look at direct visualization of central thrombus and central PE. Uh, you can very well assess the right ventricular function. And people have shown that if there's right ventricular dysfunction, in massive PE that those patients do worse in a, in a prognosis and therefore there's a reason to be more aggressive in your treatment. So that means those patients require fibrinolytic therapy, not just simple heparin and anticoagulants. Uh, you can't really use it to rule out PE. You can use it to prove PE and uh, we'll come back in a minute how, how, what, sort of, uh, what sort of management you can do because it depends a little bit on how patients present. So here you have a 
have a study of a right ventricular outflow tract is here, the aorta is there, and you have a saddle embolus sitting, well, more or less, in the right pulmonary artery, which is high signal on your, on your echocardiogram. And then we have a CT pulmonary angiography, the test of today and the future, I should say. Um, so not just uh, for future use, but we use it all the time. And I think it will be the, almost a single-handed test for pulmonary embolism. Welcome to all of you who just joined us. Um, so you're on the right page, right page now because the rest was all the introduction, right? Um, so um, there are some issues that we need to talk about with CT pulmonary uh, angiography, and that is uh, that we should think about combination with other modalities, some of them I've just mentioned. And the number of management studies, we are somewhat limited in that because the technology moves so fast that we can, can't keep up. And, uh, before this talk, somebody said, are you going to talk about PyEPAT 2? Well, PyEPAT 2 is on the four-slice scanners mainly, so that's already outdated technology. And you'll get a much better scanner early next year uh, once you're ready for it, because we've got them more or less waiting in the sidelines that can be slotted into the, seat, into the ER pretty quickly. Um, we know that uh, if you have these sort of clots, everybody can see them. You can see those in the back, right? You can see these filling defects here. So you can see it's all the way from back there, and that's the same if somebody puts that up on a workstation, somebody in the back room says, yeah, that's PE, that's the easy ones. Yeah, we don't have any problem with that. In the smaller vessels, it can be a little bit uh, more difficult. Oops, one too many. Um, hold on. Make sure I'm on the right page again. So there are only three management studies looking at single slice CT. Okay, this is sort of the 90s. Um, and um, uh, there was one paper in 97, and that sort of everybody was very enthusiastic about it, but actually the uh, mortality and morbidity in, those gr in that group was higher than what was at that time, sort of the reference methods of using lung scintigraphy and angiography. Um, so that was a bit of a problem, but later on, uh, of course, <coughs> things improved. Uh, and then the multi-slice CT came in the mid-90s, we had a two-slice scanner and then uh, now we are at 64 and we just, they've just launched more, more slices still and also faster scanners. Uh, now we can look at um, two or three millimeter slices or less. Um, and you can sort of do these coronal reconstructions, you can see the clot hanging here over the bifurcation, which is how it normally uh, will show up. <coughs> we had uh, improved looking at, looking at the middle and lower lung zones. We can uh, look at gating, so we can stop the heart essentially while we scan, or at least virtually stop the heart, and that gives us better idea of the vessels that run near the heart, so we get rid of the motion artifact. So we definitely have increased diagnostic accuracy, and there's some studies that have shown that as well. And hopefully this works. So you can uh, run through a CT now like this. So this is a 64-slice scanner, and you can run through the whole thing, and you can do all sorts of fancy stuff with it. I'm going to run it again. Um, so you can see all these vessels, and you can see the aorta, and uh, people are starting about triple rule-out and all that sort of fancy stuff, um, which is a bad idea for us because that means we're going to get even more CT requests. Um, so what about the additional role? Well, imaging of the entire deep venous system is feasible. We can do a PE study and follow it on by a CT venogram. No problem at all, we can do that. Uh, but um, think about the radiation when you do that, and I'll show you some examples in a minute. 
Uh, we can also uh, look for uh, clot burden. So this is actually, that's actually very much more important, I believe. Um, so we can tell you roughly how much clot is uh, actually there, how many vessels are occluded. And clot burden is actually uh, going to be uh, important because the idea is that the higher the clot burden, the more chance you'll have of having chronic problems, so chronic thromboembolic disease. And also clot burden may influence the way we treat patients. So if you have low clot burden, simple heparin or anticoagulants, if you have very high clot burden, you may, be, may want to be more aggressive. Uh, those are going to be the people that tend to have more um, signs of uh, hemodynamic instability. Uh, we can look at cardiac chambers um, and we can look even at the cardiac vessels as well, of course. So here's an example, patient with pulmonary embolism, both sides. You then go on, wait a few minutes, and there's the clot in the femoral vein. So we know that that's one, that's one patient. And that's doable. Um, I don't want to do it for every patient, however. What about acute or chronic? So on the left, you see a patient that's present. So there's thrombus here, but notice that the pulmonary artery is rather large. Notice the large right ventricle, right ventricular hypertrophy. We can see all those things in CT. But we can tell you this is already chronic pulmonary hypertension. Maybe an acute event, these are the patients that can't really handle that. So a small clot in such patients will already throw them off and, and, and kill them. So this patient was treated with, with heparin, follow-up scan seven days later, the clot is gone. And notice that the right ventricle, notice this septum that's come back to more or less normal. Notice the septum bulges from right to left, so very high pressures on the right side. Uh, and as a result of that, you get impairment of the heart and the left ventricle function. And that, that patient did a lot better uh, following treatment. Don't forget that the pulmonary hypertension hasn't gone away, but at least the acute event has been treated. And then the triple rule-out protocol, everybody talks about it, so I'll just throw it up. Um, it's based on the notion that chest pain patients, really, you guys only want to know one, you know, one of three things, is it an MI, is it a PE, or is it an aortic dissection? If it's none of those, then fine, we can sit on the patient or send the patient home. And with 64 slice scanners, you can do all three in one setting. And in fact, we've done one only a few weeks ago where we've gone in and done a triple rule-out protocol. And it's no problem. It means two contra contrast injections. The total contrast dose is about 160 ml, which is slightly more than we normally give. And uh, you can... Uh, Look at the aorta, so there's an aneurysm, you can look at the pulmonary arteries and you can look at the coronary arteries. And you can do all these things in one setting. Do we want to do this? No, not really. Um, and, um, and why don't we want to do this? Well, uh, if I'm going to say triple rule out, every patient that walks in with slight chest discomfort is going to have a CT scan um, and we won't be able to cope. So I think what I want to ask of you is for you guys to be selective. And, you know, if you want to help out and do the, th the right thing for the patient, I think it comes down to having close assessment of what this patient really needs and not just uh, the spinal reflex, but you've got to actually think about it. All right. So how do we do that? Well, we can put these things into context. So the first thing is a clinical decision rule. Everybody's talked about it. We have wells uh, and you can use the well score very well. And it will certainly help you stratifying patients to very low risk or intermediate risk or high risk. And that's the first step on the way to making sure we limit the number of tests we want. 
Because if you then do a plasma dimer test, and that's normal, and you have a low clinical risk, you can just send the patient home. You don't need any imaging in that patient. You can just send them home. And the literature's there to back you up to do that. So there's nobody who's going to fault you for that. Okay, you can't do this in hospitalized patients, but we're all, you're all in the ER. So this is where people just enter, walk in, you know. So combine those two things and reduce the number of patients that need imaging tests. What about ultrasound? Well, if people have leg symptoms, don't send them for a CT, send them for an ultrasound uh, scan. Um, if, it's, if it's normal, fine, you can start thinking about, you know, do we need anything else? Obviously, these patients, I'm now talking about chest symptoms, and if they only have leg symptoms, you can just stick with ultrasound. And use ultrasound, D-dimer, clin again, clinical decision rule, all those things have been well, uh, well described that you can use that similarly to PE, so low clinical suspicion, normal D-dimer test, normal ultrasound test even if you want to be sure. The chances of any, having any DVT is very, very, very low and you're very well and you're right to say we're not going to treat that and you're going to send the patient home. By all means, tell them that if the symptoms persist or get worse, come back. You know, don't, you don't have to send them off indefinitely. And then we, um, we should think about doing patients, if they have leg symptoms and chest symptoms, to start with ultrasound first because we start, show DVT. You know, nobody's ever been able to tell me that P, the treatment for PE or the treatment for DVT is very, very different. They're all needing anticoagulant therapy. There are some talks about now whether you should treat a PE longer than a DVT, but generally that's something that, you know, that's not, that's not worked out. Yeah, well, there's, there's literature out there uh, that, that, that tells you that if patients are hemodynamically stable and they're relatively well, is you can send them home on low molecular weight heparin and start oral anticoagulants and they don't need to be admitted. And there's enough literature out there now that shows you that that's possible. Big papers in the New England Journal of Medicine. Um, um, so even that uh, is not a big issue. Um, uh, I think overdiagnosis doesn't help. Uh, when you have a diagnosis of VTE, VTE is VTE, as far as I'm concerned. Um, so the lung scan is uh, more or less gone, um, but there may be some patients where a, a perfusion-only scan, only if you have a normal chest X-ray. If you have an abnormal chest X-ray, don't bother. If you have a normal chest X-ray, a perfusion-only scan may be helpful to quickly rule out. It depends on how long you have to wait for the CT scan. So it may be worthwhile to just check and see if it's quicker to get a perfusion scan. If somebody is pregnant or if somebody is a young female or all those sort of things, I'd certainly consider it. Okay, and I'll show you in a minute why. Angio, well, forget Angio, all right? So when you have management strategies, you have to take into consideration clinical context in the local setting, whether it's massive, submassive, or non-massive PE, and, I, and I'll tell you in a minute. But there are outer inpatients, in your situation, they're all outpatients, pregnancy, and things like allergies, nephropathy, and radiation dose. Yes, please. Yeah, I think it's fairly high, but for Iowa standards, we still miss a few. So we're just actually putting in a request for a new CT scanner that will take bariatric patients, um, which are the patients that are like twice my size. Um, so I think the weight limit is it's something like 450 pounds. Oh, VQ they can take higher for the scanner. 
Uh, well, body habitus influences everything, but yeah, so, but essentially no. Less so than, than uh, it influences CT. It really puts those right to the limit. Puts the scanner to the limit. So what about radiation dose? Well, to give you an example, two-view mammogram is less than three milligrays. A CT pulmonary angiogram is 15 to 20 milligrays to the breast. Uh, if you do a pulmonary angiogram, four views, about 130 to 140 milligrays. Uh, but we don't do those at often. So what you have to remember is that if you have a 20-year-old female, you know, and I see a lot of these, you know, I, see, I really am concerned. Um, we see a lot of relatively young females, late teens, early 20s, fake chest symptoms, go, can we rule out PE? Um, those patients tend to come back at least once more. I've seen a lot of them already have had two CT scans. We've just increased her risk of breast cancer 50-fold. Okay? That she'll develop breast cancer 50-fold. Not only that, she'll develop her breast cancer before mammography screening is actually available to her. She'll come back in her late 30s with breast cancer. So, this scenario is, is, is of importance. And they just uh, pre presented this um, recently. So they did 1,325 angiograms. 60% are in women. Notice the age range starts at 15. 93-year-old are not too worried about, you know. 50% um, of them are negative. 151 are non-diagnostic and 200, so 30% FPE. The minimum dose in a 60 kilogram female is 20 milligram. The dose will go up if the, if the patient weight goes up because we have to give more radiation to get, a, get a, an image out. And, and what we also see, and this is true, I've looked at here, the prevalence of PE that comes from the ER has decreased from 30 to less than 8% in this hospital in the last three years. And that's because we introduced CT pulmonary angiograms in late 2004 after I got here. And people are slamming me for it because how could I be so stupid to open this up? Well, I think about patient care. I think about workflow issues. I think about we want to be fast and get rid of patients early rather than sit on them for a day. So I have no regrets. But we do have to remember that what we, what we do here has a huge impact on our diagnostic test performance. And that's as such that if I have a prevalence of 40% and I don't change anything in sensitivity, false positives, false negatives and specificity, those figures will be exactly the same. The positive predictive value is 86% and the negative predictive value is 93%. Okay? Now what happens if I change my prevalence to 10%, I don't change anything else, my positive predictive value goes only to 50%, so I'm going to be overcalling. The negative predictive value goes to 99% because the chance of having disease in the first place is a lot less. So our test gets screwed up because we are getting patients sent to us that are relatively, you know, no chance whatsoever of having a PE, all right? And this is where your D-dimer and your clinical decision rule come into play because if you can get rid of 30%, and my prevalence, so if I have 10 in 100, you get rid of 30% that don't have it, now I have a chance of 10 in 70. So it's bringing up my prevalence of the group I'm being, uh, that's being tested. And all of a sudden, my diagnostic test is going to be doing again what I wanted to do in the first place. So what about management strategies? Well, 
If you have a massive PE, these are the patients who are hemodynamically unstable. Quite a few of those don't reach hospital. That's sort of, you know, the 5 to 10% that don't make it to hospital or die where they are or en route. They come in and they're unstable. They need to be seen quick. And the best way of doing this is a bedside echocardiogram because you're going to be looking for big clot and you're going to look for right ventricular dysfunction and you're going to look at putting those patients straight into a cardiology intensive care unit and giving fibrinolytic therapy. So that's great for, for echo. This is sort of the group that you want to single out for echocardiogram. Don't let them wait for a CT because it's just going to waste time. Then we have the group that's submassive PE. This is a slightly more contentious group. This is the group that outside, on the outside, they are hemodynamically stable. They have normal BP, they may have a little bit of tachycardia, but other than that, not much going on. You do an echocardiogram in those patients and you see right ventricular dysfunction. Now what do you do? So there are some people that have suggested that those patients should also have fibrinolytic therapy. Others say, no, you don't. The latest on that is that prognosis is slightly worse for those patients compared to the ones that are hemodynamically completely stable. All right? But that's still, that's, this is not done and dusted yet. This is still being looked at. And then we have the non-massive PE. These are the ones that are hemodynamically stable completely. All right? And this is about 90%, well, maybe 85% of everybody that comes to the ER. What we want there is a clinical assessment using Wells criteria. What we want there is a D-dimer unless they have major confounding comorbid conditions like they're known with cancer, then they have a very high risk of a PE, that doesn't matter. They've just had surgery, if they've had major trauma, all those cases, don't bother with D-dimers, no, there's no point. If they have a symptomatic leg, you can do ultrasound. Those three tests alone will reduce the numbers that you need to do, for, that need to be sent for CT by probably 30 to 40 percent. That, that makes sense. Um, if anybody with an abnormal chest x-ray already needs to have a CT anyway, perfusion scan you could, re could reserve for those patients with a normal chest x-ray. What about pregnancy? Well, it's more important to make an adequate diagnosis than it is to worry about radiation dose. But at the same time, radiation dose is a concern. So, Use non-radiation techniques. Use ultrasound to look at the legs. We know the sensitivity is low, but it doesn't matter. Uh, if you pick it up, you pick it up. The diagnosis is made. Perfusion scan, very good. But don't do the ventilation. I think you should just all forget completely about ventilation scintigraphy. It just confuses things. And you have to bear in mind that if you have a look at the fetus, PQ scan actually is a very high radiation dose for the fetus. So again, um, uh, no ventilation. Uh, MRI methods may be useful here. Um, uh, we'll, we'll show you some of that. Then we have iodinated contrast problems. So patients with allergies are increasingly common and we see, you know, we, we give pre-medication and sometimes in spite of pre-medication they still have reactions, uh, but not as bad. Nephrotoxicity is not a major problem, but you may need to think about patients who already have worse renal function uh, and then some are better to have alternative tests, including MR. So what about, what have we got in MR then? Well, we have MR angiography, MR perfusion, we have direct clot imaging, and we have ventilation imaging. And I'll show you some of these things. So MRA versus DSA has been done. The largest study in the Lancet in 2002, 141 patients. 
And notice that they are all selected patients, okay? So anybody with a normal perfusion scan didn't go for MR, they went home. Um, it was a reasonable test. It wasn't, you couldn't do it in 9%, you know, glossophobia, pacemaker, whatever. Um, inadequate in eight patients, but interestingly, it was done in two patients where they couldn't do invasive angio for one or another reason. So they had 118 and they double read all those. And uh, this is one of their movies. And you can see the clot right up here. I'll show that again. See a segment. Oops, didn't want to do that. Let's go back. You see up here there's a segment missing. <clears throat> there are other clots in there as well. There's a cut-off vessel here that doesn't carry on. And there's filling defect in here. Um, so that's P. Um, here you have the same patient, so he's digital subtraction angiogram with the clot, and here you can see the clot outlined here. So that's the vessel, you can see the clot sort of bulging into the vessel, and it's all filling that vessel, same vessel, same patient. And uh, you can compare that with CT angiography, filling defect. You can do it with digital subtraction angiography, the filling defect. You have an MR with the same filling defect. Nice thing about it, of course, is that you can do follow-up, no radiation problem at all. You can make sure that it all gets treated properly and that the clot has disappeared. So that's nice. That's a nice thing about MR methods. Sensitivity very high if you're looking at the central vessels. But notice the decline as you go to isolated subsegmental. Isolated subsegmental, though, is also a problem for even angiography, CT. It's a problem for everything. So pretty reasonable sensitivity. And the details are pretty stunning, so if you look at the left column, those are all the pre-treatment ones, and the right column are all the same, same views for the post-treatment ones, and you can see you can go for every vessel and check that the clot has disappeared, all right? Perfusion imaging is essentially time-resolved MR angio, uh, so you can look and follow. Your MR is so fast, you can just follow bolus as it goes through the lungs, so... It arrives in the pulmonary artery, and then as it goes through, you can sort of follow it through, going back into the pulmonary veins. Um, it's, this is something that uh, a lot of the MR people are working on very, very hard to improve the perfusion of organs, not just the lungs, but uh, kidneys and heart and everything else. And they can quantify that, so you can even look at treatment response effects. So, you know, give... And we have non-contrast and MR perfusion imaging so if you image in diastole and you image in systole, you can subtract the two and it gives you your subtraction image. And now look, their perfusion defects become visible that match the findings on a lung scan. The background to this is that the blood flows different, but also the vessels fill differently during diastole and systole. So as a result, you can subtract it out. Clever techniques. <coughs> this is direct clot imaging. So what you do here is saturate everything. So with, with MR you, you'll hear people talk about saturation bands. So as, essentially what you do, all signal becomes zero. Uh, and then uh, what happens is that if you do it twice, the blood will flow. And as a result of flowing blood, it has no signal. So signal void. You'll hear about signal voids in your reports maybe. Of course, if you have stationary or thrombosed blood, the signal remains. So 
light bulb effect here of this clock in the PE, light bulb effect here of this DVT in the same patient. So you can do the whole patient using this technique. It takes about, I don't know, five minutes. And we have things like gas imaging, uh, something I'm uh, trying to set up here uh, after I've done it in Sheffield before. We can look at partial oxygen tension in the lungs. So we can look at actual oxygen uptake regionally within the lungs. How well do the lung take up oxygen? And we can put it in, plot it in, in curves. So you can see here over time, you can see that the level of oxygen will disappear from a normal lung because it gets taken out of the airways into the, into the uh, bloodstream. And ultimately, this could well happen. So you have somebody with chronic pulmonary embolism, you have a ventilation scan, you have an angiogram scan, you have an oxygen map, you have a perfusion map, and the whole thing. You could put it all together to give a, a very a broad uh, look at how the lungs work, both in the <coughs> ventilation as well as in the perfusion side. So I think at the end of the day, CT will be the primary imaging test, but you have to put it into context. And uh, I think it's uh, sort of ease of use of a D-dimer and a clinical decision rule make it a very, very, make them very, very powerful techniques in your setting particularly uh, to try and prevent doing things that you don't need. Uh, and I've we've talked about all the other ones. At the end of the day, we need to reduce CT pulmonary angiograms. First of, first of all, because currently 92 out of 100 requests are coming, will come back negative because they're, they're, they don't have PE. And yes, we will find other things. So uh, I don't want you to, to say, well, I can't do a CT because, uh, well, we don't, you know, this guy told me I can't do it. Yeah, of course, you can do CT all the time. Uh, we have no problem with that. Um, but uh, I think you have to sort of look at the bigger picture. So if you, want, if you really think this is a PE, then use this. If you don't think it's a PE, then use something that's appropriate. So if you think it's pneumothorax, you do a chest X-ray. If you think it's pneumonia, you can do a chest X-ray. If you think it's more complicated, you can do a CT scan. But don't write out ROPE on every request because that's what I'm seeing every day. And ROPE actually doesn't get reimbursed. Did you know that? So we get no payment in this hospital for ROPE on your request. You have to put down what the symptoms are. So dyspnea, acute chest pain, all those things. ROPE, no reimbursement. We lose $1,000 for every scan that goes in like that. All right. And when I see we lose, because it's hospital-wide, we all lose. All right. This is a very important article, and I urge all of you to read it if you haven't already done so. New England Journal of Medicine, 2005. This is again the, the Geneva group, and uh, they've done this in their ER. Uh, 756 patients. Notice that they had 26% PE. That's very high, actually, compared to what we see here. Um, but what they did was low clinical probability and low or, or low to intermediate clinical probability with a normal D-dimer test. They said, that's fine, we exclude PE. They had high clinical probability or raised D-dimer and or raised D-dimer test. They did ultrasound and CT pulmonary angiogram and diagnosed PE in patients with a high clinical probability <coughs> in virtually everybody. There's only four that they didn't diagnose that. So your clinical decision rule actually works, okay? Don't underestimate the power of a good history, a good investigation, and having your, put it into, into your mind. Um, and P excluded in not high clinical probability was 33% by D-dimer alone, all right? And they had a very low recurrence rate. In fact, that was very, very low indeed. 
So MRI will be increasingly used to assess therapy effects, so ther perfusion imaging, uh, NGO, um, and uh, you know, I can't look in the crystal ball, but this is something I always keep in mind that in the 60s, um, we have men on the moon and we looked at NGO and VQ, and then the computers became a bit better, but we sort of, so we developed CT in the 80s, and uh, computers are better still, and uh, now we're looking in uh, MRI. Um, at the end of the day, um, we don't wish for these sort of headlines. Uh, 6th of December 2010, Dr. Seuss for inappropriate use of CT pulmonary angiogram in 35-year-old patient who developed breast cancer having undergone this test to rule out lung clot twice over a period of two years between 2000 and 2002. And this is sort of the nightmare scenario that I am um, sort of half predicting that this is going to happen. Okay. Um, I know that there will be lawyers who are going to jump on this the minute they get any sense of that. Or another one which says, Dr. Sued for missing a small lung clot that resulted in a second fatal lung clot. Slightly less likely, but not completely unlikely, because obviously if you, only, if you send lower and lower clinical probability, we are going to see smaller and smaller clot, and somewhere along the line we'll miss one. And I'm just saying that uh, this is not even just applicable to PE. Uh, we have a lot of, I mean, our RCT uh, numbers have increased. Uh, from t uh, during 2005, we had a 60% increase in chest CT. Okay, and we had two, two fewer staff in that period at the same time. So, what you guys, you know, what, what uh, physicians are requesting at some point, it's going to come to the point that, that we just say, no, can't do. And then what? Um, you have to realize that there's a winner, which is CT pulmonary angiography, um, but it comes with a handicap. Okay, and the handicap is that uh, the test is only as good as the patients that you refer on to that, having that test. And that's my, my winner here, who was a basketball champion for the state of Iowa last year, uh, but he's also autistic, so he has a handicap too. All right, thanks.